Today's episode is brought to you by Anchor Podcasts. They're our new partner here at the Mac Report, and their mission is to democratize audio. Anchor believed everyone should be able to have their voice heard, regardless of background or experience level. And if you've ever tried a podcast before, you know all the logistical barriers that can stand in your way. At Anchor, they aim to remove every single one of those barriers. Their goal is to make podcasting easy and fun without sacrificing the quality that every podcaster deserves. It's so easy with Anchor Podcasts, you can even create a podcast from your phone. To learn more, visit anchor.fm today. It is Thursday, April 23rd. 2020. Welcome to the Mac Report Podcast. I'm Mike McMahon. In a little bit, we'll be joined by the assistant coach of the Merrimack men's hockey team, Josh Siako. If you missed it, last week we talked to his uh, colleague, Dan Jewell, who's the other assistant on staff, uh, and we'll have some more of these coming up in the next couple of weeks. But we talked to Josh today about his background, both as a player and as a coach. He had some interesting stories. Uh, he was at UNH, and Scott Bork recruited him to go there when he was the assistant coach at UNH. So he's got experience with Coach Bork both as a player and now obviously as a coach. Uh, and He's got some good stories too, just working in, in Alaska for Alaska Anchorage for a couple of years. Uh, he was at Brown for a couple of years before Merrimack. And then we talked a lot about this past year uh, and this past year's team as well and, and looked ahead a little bit to what next year could look like for this team. Uh, we talked last week about Vermont. They did hire Todd Woodcroft. Uh, so that job is now uh, settled. We'll see who he hires for assistance. It sounds like Jeff Hill is probably going to have an opportunity to stay on there. Uh, and then they will look to add another assistant coach. My guess is that he's going to add someone with college experience, perhaps someone that's even on a current staff somewhere. I wouldn't That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but I think he's going to be looking for somebody with, with some recruiting experience anyway. Uh, then last night, we learned that Bob Godette at Dartmouth has retired. He announced his retirement last night. Kind of a surprise, uh, at least from the people that I've talked to. A lot of people surprised that that, that announcement came down uh, at the time that it did. it did. Nobody really expected it, I, I think. I don't think anybody really saw it coming. So that is another head coach opening. I know I just said last week I didn't think we would see another one of these. I think we would have known about them by now. Uh, but here we are with another opening, this one in the ECAC, in late April, uh, and we'll see what happens there. There's been some rumblings that that Ben Lovejoy, uh, who was a former Dartmouth player, a uh, former, a longtime NHL player, uh, has the inside track at the job. He was a, a volunteer assistant there, I think, this past season, so he has a little bit of experience uh, helping coach this past season's team. He's a New Hampshire native, so he's, he lives in the area, I would assume, uh, he played at Dartmouth for three years. He started at Boston College, transferred to Dartmouth, uh, finished up there in 2007, and then ended up going to the NHL. He ended up playing in 544 NHL games as a defenseman, started with the Pittsburgh Penguins, then the Anaheim Ducks, then back with the Penguins, and finished up last year, or spent three seasons with New Jersey, and then finished up last year uh, at the end of the year after getting traded with the Dallas Stars. Uh, but 544 NHL games for Ben Lovejoy, and he seems to have the inside track at that job from what a lot of people were saying today. It's really early in the process, though. That being said, I do think Dartmouth had an idea that this retirement was coming uh, at least a week ago. Uh, so I think they've started to move on on who their next option is. I, I think they would prefer an alum. There's not many Dartmouth alums in coaching. Scott Boric is one, <laughs> interestingly enough. But I think Ben Lovejoy kind of has the inside track 
at that job. And and if he doesn't want it, then I think it will open up to to some of the names that we've heard about for a while, whether it's Ben Sire or uh, Ben Barr or, you know, Jerry Keefe could get involved. I, I think it'll be kind of Chris Mayotte, another one. I think it'll open up itself to a, the, the usual cast of characters if Lovejoy doesn't get the job. But again, it, it sounds like from a, a lot of people expect Ben Lovejoy to get that position if he wants it. And that's the big question, if he wants it. You know, he's been a longtime NHL player. Does he want to jump right into coaching? Uh, who knows? But I think if he wants the job, it's probably his. Of course, it worked for Ted Donato. Uh, some people will look at that and say, well, what qualifies Ben Lovejoy to be a head coach? Well, I, I think experience as a player you know, does count, especially if you're a college player and you were a college player at that school and you helped out with the team this past season. So you've been around the guys, you kind of know the roster. Uh, and then, it, you know, obviously it worked for Ted Donato. He's been at Harvard for close to 20 years at this point. So uh, I think it could work. And I think a lot of players would be attracted to playing for a guy that played as long as he did in the national hockey league. And, uh, you know, and a lot of other people too, just, just talk about how smart of a player he was just really not even just as a player, a really intelligent person. So uh, I think he would do well, you know, I think he would do well, but we'll see whether or not it's a job he wants. Sometimes guys come out of the NHL and they don't want to jump into being a head coach anywhere, uh, especially college hockey where, uh, things are, are, a little different. You got to deal with recruiting, obviously the head coaches though, not as much. Uh, but again, it's worked. I mean, Sean McEachern went into coaching. He was an assistant. You didn't even get a head coaching job. He was an assistant at Lowell and in, in Northeastern for a while. Uh, I think Sean McEachern was almost at Merrimack at one point too. At least he was pursued by Mark Dennehy at one point when he had an assistant opening. I don't know. Don't know when that was. It may have been when Albie O'Connell was on staff or maybe when, Al- when O'Connell left. But there was a, I remember hearing a story at one point that uh, Denny, he was pursuing Sean McEachern to be an assistant there. And he just, he, at the, that time in his life, he wasn't really interested. I think he was volunteering at some places. Uh, and then he ended up being an assistant for, for a number of seasons um, before, the, before he ended up being a head coach in prep hockey. And now he's moving to the Boston Imperials, which is a, an academy program that's going to play out of Matinon High School in Arlington. Uh, but Dartmouth is open. Ben Lovejoy, again, seems like he has the inside track there if he wants it. I, I wouldn't say has the inside track. I think Ben Lovejoy will have that job if he wants it. I, I think it's kind of an open offer. He's going to have first dibs. If he wants the job, it's probably his. If he doesn't want it, then they'll open it up to a more formal, you know, a more formal search. From an assistant standpoint, there's still some openings there. Yale, uh, they've got a hiring freeze in, in, in place right now, so I don't think Yale's going to be adding an assistant anytime soon. Um, there was other assistants oh, at Vermont. Obviously, they have that assistant opening. St. Cloud State still has an assistant opening. Uh, it sounds like there might be another NCHC team, NCHC team that has one soon as well. Um, not official on that yet, but there's some talk that an NCHC team may lose an assistant uh, in the coming days who may be looking for a scouting job. So that may come down shortly. Um, and that's kind of all the news, uh, uh, kind of a slow news cycle (laughs) recently with, with everything going on. I think the focus for most people is just whether or not we're going to be able to start on time with college athletics in the fall. I don't know. Uh, UConn's president said this past week, kind of informally, I think addressing some journalism students that he didn't think fall sports were going to happen in the NCAA. Uh, I know there's been some talk of leagues, college hockey-wise, preparing for uh, a late start to the season. Somebody told me earlier in the week that Hockey East is looking at uh, preparing 
a plan for if they cannot start the year until January 1st. I mean, this all kind of stems from that report that Boston University might not open up in the fall, that BU might not go back until after Christmas. If there's no students on campus and the college isn't open, there's no college athletics. So if hockey, let's say, can't start until January 1st, uh, talking to some people this week, it sounds like the league is making plans for that to happen. Uh, one of the things I heard, and this was not from anybody in Hockey East, but it was somebody uh, close to one of the schools that had kind of told me that the idea maybe would be a 20-game schedule, no non-conference games, all league games, starting January 1st, all conference games, one home, one away against all your all your league opponents. That would give you 20 games. You'd have, if, you, if the tournament were to start at the same time, you'd have roughly eight to 10 weeks to do it. Actually, probably about eight or nine weeks to do it. Uh, so you'd have to, you could play two games a weekend and then squeeze in some midweek games, I think would be the way to do it, especially for Maine and Vermont. If they don't want them home one night and on the road the next, Maine and Vermont would probably have to do things uh, with some midweek games or maybe come down on one weekend and play BC and BU and then come down one weekend and play Merrimack and Lowell uh, and then be at home for two games on a weekend where they would play two different teams. And maybe those teams that would play up there, if they're playing you know, Vermont on a Saturday, you would get a Wednesday game to kind of separate, not have to play Friday night, let's say at home, and then travel to Burlington for a Saturday night game. Uh, I personally don't think that's a huge deal. Uh, you know, Look at Merrimack, for example. If Merrimack played at home on a Friday and then played at Maine on a Saturday, are they really at a big disadvantage? Don't think so. Uh, I, I think, honestly, even Maine and Vermont, I think you could do home and homes at Maine and Vermont, and it really would not be a big issue. A lot of these guys are coming from junior hockey where they're traveling eight, ten hours on a bus. Uh, I think a three-and-a-half-hour ride to Maine playing the next night is not the end of the world. Uh, you know, especially if you have a home game, you could be out of the you could be out of the rink by 10 at the latest. You know, you're pulling into your hotel at 1 or one thirty. You can still – it's not like you're pulling into the hotel at 4 a.m., so – I've never thought that that was a big issue. I've always thought that home and homes, even with Maine and Vermont, are something that could and probably should be happening. Uh, I just don't see the, the problem with it, especially if, if it's a level playing field. Let's say, you know, for example, Merrimack is at Maine on a Saturday and they're at home on a Friday. Well, as long as Maine is on the road on Friday and they're not sitting at home waiting for you to get there or playing at home the night before, I don't see there's any reason why you can't. You know, if Merrimack is at home against BC on a Friday and Merrimack is at Lowell and then Merrimack is at Maine on a Saturday, well, they both have the same travel. So I think the easiest way to do it is just do home and homes. The, the only teams uh, Maine and Vermont probably could not do home and homes with in the league are maybe UMass, Providence, and UConn. Those, those are the ones that would be tough because of the distance. You know, because you're three and a half hours to Merrimack, and then you're another hour and a half, two hours, you know, to Providence, depending upon traffic, if it's a Friday game. So that's the only one that where it might be a little difficult. You know, those three schools, you might have to figure out something else for, for Maine and Vermont, but everybody else could, should, could be able to do and should be able to do home and homes. Uh, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. Hopefully they can open the season on time, but uh, I know they're at least making plans, which is good. I mean, it, hey, you want them to at least have a plan in place. If they can't start the year on time, have a plan in place so that we know what we're doing and hopefully we can still get a season in um, and not just have and not have everything you know come together kind of haphazardly. Have a plan in place so if you need to go to it, you have the ability to. So, all right, uh, that's all I got. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will have Merrimack assistant coach Josh Siaco. 
Sage, what about this stick? I like the orange in it. No, Mom, what is this? This stick is so dusty, there's no more Geno's left in it. I can take it from here, Mom. What kind of tweet are we looking for here, bud? Just a stick so I could toss sauce, Chef Boyardee style. Something more apples versus buckets. Yeah, as long as I could still snipe Bar South and Sally. All right, I got the perfect tweet for you. It's going to be this stick here, mid-flex point stick, completely accurate for buy down every time. This is awesome. I love it. TSR Hockey. We speak your language. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. That way it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one simple place. We use Anchor here for the TMR podcast, and it could not be easier. Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, we're here with Merrimack Men's Hockey Assistant Coach Josh Siaco. Josh, how you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. I know we, we did this with Dan Jewell last week and uh, talked about a little bit about how we've been killing time uh, not being able to do anything else. What, what has kind of taken up your, your, your days the last month or so? Trying to stay as active physically as possible. Uh, even though that's becoming more and more of a challenge. Um, you know, in terms of work, trying to, you know, touch as many recruits as possible, stay in touch with our current players and our team. Like, that takes up a good chunk of my day. But trying to stay as busy as possible. But even, you know, during now, it's definitely a, a challenge. Are you, are you guys allowed to talk to recruits again? Because it was a while there it was frozen. But I think it reopened. You can make phone contact now, I think, right? Yeah, it's currently a dead period, and during a dead period, you just can't have uh, face-to-face contact with recruits or evaluate them. So you can basically make as many phone calls as you would like, but um, you can't evaluate them or have, you know, in-person contact. Sure. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, of course, and how you ended up at Merrimack, but let's let's start first as a player. Uh, four years at UNH, two-year captain. Uh, what was your experience like playing up in Durham? Uh, really good experience up there, just in the sense of, you know, um, when I got up there, I want to say when I committed to the team, uh, they were the number one team in the country at the time. So when I got up there, it was almost the precipice of UNH's success. Uh, so I was fortunate in the sense that I was able to play on some really good teams there, uh, won a lot of games, uh, came up short on winning a national title, but uh, definitely had a great experience from a academic, social, and athletic perspective. I don't think I could have asked for much more out of a four-year college experience. Now, uh, Coach Bork was there when you were there. Did he, did he recruit you? He, he did, actually. So I want to say that I was, you know, SB was at UNH for 13 years, and I think I was his, his second recruit total. Wow. So, he got the, <laughs> so I, I was recruited. Uh, I think he started that process in August of 2002, I think I committed to UNH in October of 2002, and he got the job at UNH, I want to say in like June or July of 2002, um, reached out to me and made contact with me kind of right away. Uh, it's an odd story as to how that all came about. Um, actually, David Quinn was at Nebraska-Omaha at the time, uh-huh. and Quinny had just left Omaha to take the job at the NTDP. And Coach Bork and Dave Quinn are good buddies. So Quinny was getting out of college hockey. 
And Quinny was recruiting me to Nebraska Omaha prior to taking the NTDP job. So when SB got the job at UNH, Quinny kind of gave him my name, and that's how that process started. That's funny. That's funny. Um, when, when you were at UNH and, and kind of going through your career as a player, and even afterwards when you played pro, was there a, a moment where you kind of knew, or, or a, a year when you kind of knew that, that coaching was something you'd probably want to get into down the line? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, certainly during my time at UNH, I was definitely just focused on, you know, winning hockey games and being a player and being a college student. Um, I think at some point during my time, obviously you start to realize where your limitations are as a player. And I probably realized that, you know, I wasn't going to make a living playing hockey, certainly not in the national hockey league level. So um, I definitely knew that I wanted to work in hockey. Um, and, you know, my, my path to, to coaching, I guess, is a, a fairly common one. You know, I, I started out actually in the agent business. I did that for about a year and a half. Oh, really? I didn't know then that. I got out. Of, yeah, then I got out of hockey altogether and went back to school, got my MBA, worked in finance, realized kind of that that wasn't for me and found my way back into the coaching side of things. Was Milton Academy the, the first coaching job you landed after that? That was the first coaching job. And oddly enough, so obviously SB coached me for four years. We're, you know, I mean, he's family to me at this point. Um, him and the head coach at Milton Academy is a guy named Paul Canada, who is really good friends with um, Coach Bork. And interestingly enough, um, I mean, long story short, the reason why I almost got I decided to get into coaching is I actually almost kind of caught a break early in my career and got the assistant coaching job at UNH with Coach Bork. Oh, really? um, yeah, and ended up kind of falling through at the last minute, and Jim Tortorella ended up getting that job. Oh, okay. But it was at that point that um, SB basically reached out to Kanata for me, and he was like, hey, I, you know, I realize you're disappointed, but at the same time, you know, you kind of got to get started here, and I think this is a good starting point for you. So I reached out to Coach Kanata, developed a relationship there, and that's obviously where I got my start. Uh, and, and then after a year there, ended up in Alaska for three years. Uh, not only from a coaching standpoint was that an adjustment, I'm sure, but but just living in Alaska, I, I would imagine, is a, is a pretty big adjustment to go through. Yeah, so my, my boss in Alaska was actually my one of my coaches in pro hockey. So I had a relationship with him. Uh, when he got the job up there, he reached out to me, and you know that's kind of how that all went about. But, no, I, I actually um, – Living in Anchorage, I think it was a really good experience. It's something I'm glad I did. Um, it's not a place that I would say I think I'd be happy spending the rest of my life there, but it's definitely somewhere that I'm glad I spent a few years doing that. Yeah, um, From a recruiting standpoint out there, too, I mean, it seems like those schools are obviously targeting a lot of Western Canadian players, BCHL, Alberta League, Saskatchewan. Is that, is that where you kind of spent most of your time looking at players when you were out there? Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's from a development standpoint, it's a really good um, way to extend your network. I mean, I think during those three years in Anchorage, I mean, I, I lived at the Holiday Inns in Western Canada. Um, and, you know, I spent the majority of my time in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And I think working at a school like that, it really does allow you to kind of develop networks in uh, non-traditional areas. What was the travel like out there? Because I mean, I, I've seen some things. I think I don't. Know, I don't think it was Anchorage. I think it was Fairbanks a few years ago that uh, was going through kind of the run in the playoffs. And ended up kind of down here for for two or three weeks. Uh, would Would you guys come down and, and spend you know maybe a week at a time if you had back to back weekends on the road? Or I've heard some stories like that where they would kind of just stay. 
Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, it, it, even worse for an assistant coach because there would be times that I would be on the road recruiting. So I'd be on a 10-day road trip. I'd get home. I'd spend, you know, two days at home, and then our team would be going on a road trip. So I'd get right back on a plane and go on the road. But I think it was my second year up in Anchorage. Our, we had a pretty good team, and uh, we lost in the uh, – we won the first round of playoffs on the road. Um, so we went on the road for the first round of playoffs we won so we had to stay on the road and we went to the um the final four of the wcha okay yeah, you know won, that's the story i was thinking of yeah because it just you kept you kept winning and then weren't able to go home <laughs> yeah and have we won the uh the wcha we it doesn't make sense to fly all the way back to alaska and then fly all the way back to the lower 48 so I think it would have ended up be- being like, you know, a three-week road trip, essentially. <laughs> oh, well, then after that, uh, you moved over to Brown. How'd the move to Brown come about? Um, so, you know, at that point, the, the tra- I don't want to say the travel wore me down in Anchorage, but uh, if you've been following the situation up there, I was definitely committed to being there. I really liked the, the working environment that I was in. I, I loved my boss. I loved the other – I loved the staff that I was on. And um, Anchorage at the time was on kind of shaky grounds financially. Yeah. So the job opened up at Brown. Um, the other assistant coach at Brown at the time, Jason Guerrero, is a really good friend of mine. He basically reached out to me, and those guys pretty much offered me the job right away. And, you know, I talked to my boss, and it was one of those things where even he was like, you have to take the job. You know, we don't even know if we're going to have a team next year. So – it, you know, I definitely wanted to get back out east and, you know, provided me that opportunity to do that. And I was also in kind of a sticky situation. So it was nice to get some job security. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and then Brown, obviously, I think it was last year, Brown uh, had a little bit of a surge there. And, and I'm sure you probably had a hand in recruiting some of those guys, too. Yeah, they went on a nice little run. Um, one of the challenges that we had during my two years was kind of the goaltending position. In my last year there, I think we definitely settled that position down a little bit, and then those guys kind of excelled the following year. And even this year, I think they were pretty solid in that. So, um, no, they had a talented group. Brown is a – it was a – I don't want to say a, a difficult place to recruit at because it had, a, you know, a lot of appealing features. But definitely working at a scholarship school versus an Ivy League school yeah. is, definitely something that, is definitely something that I enjoy a little bit more. Uh, and and then you made the move to Merrimack, obviously, when, when Coach Bork got the job here. Uh, did you know pretty quickly that you were going to be part of the staff? I remember he got hired. I was out in, I think, Minneapolis at the Frozen Four. I think it was in Minneapolis that year. And not long after he got hired, somebody at the school, your name was one of the first ones brought up as far as a staff. Like, <laughs> it was almost the day of when I was kind of poking around going, who might be on the staff? And, and your name was one of the first ones that popped up. Obviously, you had that, that relationship with him. But did you know pretty soon thereafter that uh, moving to Merrimack was probably something you wanted to do? Well, oddly enough, so SB in his, in his last year at Providence was living in Newburyport and commuting down to Providence. Oof. So he was, you know, he was commuting about an hour and a half each way. And there would be a lot of nights. Uh, so my first year at Brown, I actually lived with Coach Bork. And then my second year at Brown, I got my own apartment, and he was living in Newburyport. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of times, you know, like he would just need a place to stay for a night. You know, he'd be doing video late in the office. He'd call me up and just say, hey, can I kind of crash your apartment tonight? So in his last year at Providence, he was at my apartment quite a bit. And 
Um, I kind of knew what his process was when he was going through the, the job process at Merrimack. And um, I think it was pretty well known that if he got that job, I would have, I would have followed him. And I think it's, I mean, like you said, if you asked anybody, you know, who do you think coach Boris going to hire? I think most people in the hockey community know that I'm basically like his kid. So he's he definitely <laughs> going to bring me. Uh, then what was the experience? I mean, once you got here and you kind of got to work, uh, you guys have done a lot of work over the last couple of years of putting last this, this year's freshman class together, but also next year's freshman class and, and beyond. Uh, what, what has it been like just kind of going through that process and hitting the road and, and finding, finding the players is really a, a good chunk of players that are coming in both this past year and this upcoming year. You know, for me personally with Coach Bork, obviously I had that, you know, player-coach relationship with him for a while. Then it went to more of a, you know, friend-mentor relationship. And then obviously he was my boss. And I'll tell you that he's been a million more times critical of me as my boss than he ever was in the past. So uh, definitely at times that's presented some challenges within our relationship, but no, I've, I've enjoyed working for him a ton. Obviously, I've, I've, you know, I continue to learn a lot from him. He's super, um, you know, energetic. He's got certainly has more energy than I do. I don't know when he sleeps, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I sometimes get texts at like 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure how that all goes down. If he just takes these cat naps and he's up at all, or if he's actually up at all hours of the night. But yeah, I obviously get the same text. But no, like there's, you know, he's had the success that he's had for a reason and. You know, I've definitely enjoyed um, being able to be a part of that and kind of learn from him. Yeah, it, it's funny, too. I mean, I don't know, and I've said this to him, I don't know how many head coaches are as heavily involved in recruiting as he is. I mean, there there have been times where I've called him on a Monday where you guys might have off for something, and, you know, he's like, oh, I flew out to, you know, Sioux City for the day. I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. It's like, for the wait, you flew out for the day? Just to meet somebody. Like, that's happened at least once. Uh, have, have you no, just I, in, in your other stops? Have you worked with a head coach that have, has been as heavily involved in recruiting as he is? Because obviously, I mean, that's what he did for so many years. Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely have not worked with somebody with the same size network as him. And you know, I knew this obviously prior to working with him. There's never a rink that put it this way. Anytime I walk into a rink with him, um, leaving that rink is about a 45 minute process every time. <laughs> And, you know, like you try to walk out of the rink and he's got to talk to this person. He's got to talk to that person. He, you know, and he, he just knows everybody. Um, so uh, I think it's actually killing him that he hasn't been able to spend as much time uh, in the player evaluation process as he has in the past. I definitely think that's an adjustment for him. Uh, but, no, I mean, he's, he's super involved and there's never a, a call that he's not willing to make for us or a drive or a, a trip that he's not willing to take. Sure. What what is this? I mean, with, with everything kind of being shut down, what what has this done to alternate your plans a little bit? Because I mean, I'm sure this was a time I talked to Dan about it last week. This is a time where you guys would have been pretty busy in terms of being on the road with uh, you know USHL playoffs and you know British Columbia League playoffs and all that other stuff. All the the playoffs where all those leagues come, and then a lot of them still be playing right now. And some of them would you know the USHL would kind of just be getting into their playoffs. What has it kind of done to? to that recruiting? I mean, I know you can't meet or evaluate players, but what has it kind of done from a planning standpoint? Uh, you're just, you're home a lot more than I, I'm sure you figured to be at this time of year. Yeah. So I guess like one of the things that we're trying to do is uh, I guess use the time we, you know, we got, we have a list just like every other school. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is use the time to maybe develop those relationships a little bit better than we would have had the time to do in the past. So 
just finding a way to, you know, touch kids a little bit more uh, than we previously were able to do, whether that's through a, a text or an email or a phone call or a, um, a Zoom call. Um, those are the things that we're trying to use the time to, I guess, help our process. But, no, it's definitely unfortunate that, you know, playoffs in particular, that's a time where uh, you really get to see the, the best in kids. So to lose that evaluation time is definitely a little bit disappointing, but at the same time, every program in the country is going through that as well. I, I know I've, met, I've mentioned this to Coach Bork before too, but just kind of looking ahead the next year, uh, there was a few years ago – you know, everyone always talk when you talk about Merrimack hockey and some of the better years. Everyone always talks about the year they went to the national tournament eleven. And I've said to people, you know, yeah, that was the year where it kind of popped. But you could tell the year or two before that that something was kind of brewing. Uh, and that's kind of what this year felt like to me with the number of freshmen you guys had, the number of of close games you're in. I mean, just look at the look at the the one goal games, the the one goal losses. There was a lot of them. Uh, with a little more experience, some of those get flipped. Did it kind of feel like as the year went on, especially with some of the success you had in the second half, uh, getting into getting into January and stuff like that? Did it kind of feel like there was something something bubbling a bit there that that you're kind of on the verge of, of maybe taking off a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the way that we look at it is, uh, you know, our decor in particular, um, I think we have, a, you know, one through eight. I, I really do feel like we have as deep of a group as anybody in our league. And I think that decor has been the most encouraging part of our team. And as those guys have developed and progressed, um, you could just see games and situations were getting a little bit easier and easier for us. And I really do I have a lot of confidence in that group. And I feel like as they continue to develop, that group in particular should be able to, you know, carry our team to have more, more and more success. Yeah, and we've talked about some of the forwards coming in next year with SB too, but you get get some injection there with uh, some highly, highly sought after forwards and and Mark Killier and and Alex Jeffries and Jacob Lee. I mean, it seems like there's going to be a, an offensive punch coming in from some of these guys too. Yeah, we're definitely excited about some of the recruits, but in all honesty, like I think you know we we obviously lost some pretty good players. Trevitz, Irvine, mm-hmm. Tavernier, but I, you know, I've been asked, well, who's going to replace those guys? And quickly, I guess my response is, I think that Jordan Seifert, Patrick yep. Kramer, and Philip Forsmark is going to replace those guys. Yeah, like, Forsmark is the one. No one, like, I feel like he's kind of been forgotten, and it's a, he, he's a guy that probably would have been a top six player for you guys this year that wasn't able to play. Absolutely. I mean, it was frustrating to watch that kid in practice all year and not be able to put him in the lineup, particularly on our power play. Um, but I just look at those three players right there. I mean, those are older experienced guys that were on our team this year that we weren't able to use um, that are really going to add value and depth to our team. And then you factor in, you know, the freshmen and see what kind of impact they can make. Um, I think it's definitely going to be the deepest forward group we've had. And like I mentioned with our, with our D core gaining another year of experience, I, I, I'm definitely excited about this year. And I think that we're going to have, um, I guess just like a lot more tools that are our, our exposure there. Yeah, and, and even some of the freshmen forward too. I know uh, we had talked about this with SB about a month ago. The number of freshmen forward that hit that double-digit point mark, it's the most, I think, since the, the early 90s uh, that they've had. You had that many freshmen forwards hit at least 10 points with Brar, Walsh, Welsher, Kimmins, uh, you know, and we don't even talk about we didn't even talk about Forsmark, who probably would have been up there as well. I mean, Regan Kimmins had 14 points. Mac Welsher had 12 points, seven goals. I mean, those are guys that a little more experience as a sophomore 
could be nearing that 20-point mark as sophomores. Yeah, I think all those guys have kind of proved that they can, you know, play at this level and they can be every night guys and factor in. And, you know, like I said, we had some guys that were, were sitting out that will get back into our lineup that have also proven themselves and I think will help. But, yeah, Philip Forsmark in particular, um, there's a, I would probably say, and I think all the freshmen would probably even agree with this, he's probably the most talented forward in that group offensively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would expect him, I mean, he's going to be a 21, 22 year old freshman, really. Uh, so he's more than ready and experienced enough to come in and contribute right away. Um, so I would expect him to make a big impact on our team and the freshmen, again, I think we have some talented guys coming in, but you never quite know what to expect until they're here. And, and there's an adjustment period, I'm sure too, especially for the guys that are coming out of prep. I mean, that, that's a pretty big jump. Prep to hockey East is a big jump. Yeah. And, I've seen that, you know, you've seen that go. There's been some kids that they don't need uh, much time at all to make that adjustment. There's some kids that need the whole year to make that adjustment. And you really don't know that, how they're, how they're going to react until they're put in that situation. So we're obviously excited about the group, and we think at some point they're all going to be big contributors for us. Um, but we got to get here. we got to get, their, get our hands on them and kind of see where they're at. Sure. Well, this has been awesome. I appreciate the time. I know we're looking forward to getting back in the rinks with my kids. They're just – they're going nuts here. I think everyone's looking forward to getting back into a rink somewhere. So uh, thanks again, and, and hopefully we can do this again soon, and, and we'll see you in a rink hopefully soon. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time, and thanks for the work you do. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike McMahon CHN, and you can follow the site at the mac reports if you're a facebook user you can also find us on facebook thanks again for listening and until next time bye